Mother's Day evokes a wide range of responses in people depending on the circumstances of our lives. I think it's the butt of some of the worst jokes I have ever heard. Um, it, is a, uh, it is certainly one of the most marketed days in the calendar year. And so we are bombarded with all sorts of messages, some of which are clearly meant to encourage us to spend money and to live up to ideals that fit neatly on a greeting card. But on the other hand, uh, less cynically, it's also an opportunity for us to think about our mothers. And those of us, for those of us who are mothers, to give thanks for our children, which I do today. The, mother day, the Mother's Day we celebrate now can be traced to the efforts of a woman of the early 20th century, her name was Anna Jarvis, who wanted to honor her own mother and then to establish a way for all mothers to be celebrated. Now, this was a time when she and many others were worried about rising neg negligence of the elderly. This was when social mobility was starting to take hold in this country. There was nothing like the safety nets of social security and pension plans, and there was widespread abandonment of the elderly at times of their greatest need. And so Anna Jarvis started encouraging members of her own church, first of all, to, uh, to remember their mothers and to give their mothers carnations on a specified day, which happened to be her mother's favorite flower. And then she turned her efforts to lobbying for an official Mother's Day holiday. And those efforts were rewarded by 1911. Mother's Day was celebrated in nearly every state of the Union. And by 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed a joint resolution designating today, second Sunday of May, as Mother's Day. Now, there was an earlier effort to promote a Mother's Day. This goes back now to the 1870s. And those efforts were focused primarily on children, and specifically young men sent off to war. It was uh, through the efforts of the pacifist and social activist Julia Ward Howe that this movement began. And she wrote what she called an appeal to womanhood throughout the world which later became known as the Mother's Day Proclamation. And it was a response to the devastating carnage and loss of young life in the American Civil War and in the Franco-Prussian War. How believed that women had a responsibility to affect political change. And she too lobbied for a celebration known as Mother's Day for Peace to be celebrated on the 2nd of June every year she was not successful in that. But let me read to you a small portion of her Mother's Day proclamation. Again, in the sight of the Christian world, have the skill and power of two great nations exhausted themselves in mutual murder. In this day of progress, in this century of light, 
the ambition of rulers have been allowed to barter the dear interests of domestic life for the bloody exchanges of the battlefield. Thus men have done. But women need no longer be made a party to proceedings that fill the globe with grief and horror. Despite the assumptions of physical force, the mother, the mother has a sacred and commanding word to say to the sons who owe their life to her suffering. This word should now be heard and answered to as never before. Arise, women, she wrote. Arise. Striking to me that the impulse of both of these efforts to establish a Mother's Day was, uh, were motivated in the desire to improve the lives of people who were at risk, the elderly and young, young men and boys sent off to war. And it is in the spirit of the earlier Mother's Day proclamation and its call for peaceful activism on behalf of children that we in the Diocese of Washington have asked our people to pray and to give witness to our collective concern and grief for the fate of so many children in our country today, particularly for children of color, those who live, those children who live in the shadows of violence and are collectively at far greater risk than their Caucasian peers. We pray today for all mothers' children, but with particular concern for those who are in harm's way. The statistics around these trends are staggering when you place them alongside to each other, and they point to uh, trends that should disturb us all. According to a recent study from the Department of Education, for example, in our schools, children of color are three times more likely to be suspended from school than their white counterparts, even at ages as young as four, for similar transgressions and offenses. Black girls are suspended at higher rates than all other girls and most boys. At the uh, gathering in Baltimore after the, um, after the funeral of Freddie Gray, there was this young girl who just climbed up to a microphone and cried into it, my teachers don't care about me. My teachers don't believe in me. Children of color are far more likely to, to attend substandard schools. A quarter of the children with the highest percentage of black and Latino students, high schools now, do not offer basic algebra, and a third don't offer chemistry. Black, Latino, and Native American students attend schools with the highest concentrations of inexperienced teachers, many of whom leave after the first year. Concentrations of race and poverty compound unsafe and unhealthy living conditions for children of color, many of whom grow up in single-parent neighborhoods with high unemployment and, frankly, boredom. Um, there is nothing for our children to do, cried a mother at that same rally in Baltimore. They have nothing to do. Contrast that with how so many of children of other uh, other socioeconomic and community backgrounds are overscheduled to the point of exhaustion, and the contrast there is heartbreaking. Moving now to the criminal justice system, we have the highest incarceration rates in the world. 
and the prison population in the last 40 years has increased from 300,000 to 2.3 million people today. And there are 6 million Americans who are either on probation or parole. One in every 15 people born in 2001 is expected to go to prison. One in every three black male babies born in this century is expected to go to prison. One in three. Some states have no minimum age for prosecuting children as adults. We've sent a quarter million children to adult jails and prisons to serve adult prison terms, and some are as young as 12. We are the only country in the world that condemns children to life imprisonment without parole. 300,000 juveniles are now serving sentences in which they will die in prison. The school-to-prison pipeline that you may hear about in the media is real. Students of color face harsher punishments in schools than their white peers, which leads to a higher number of youth who are incarcerated, and the incarceration patterns uh, begin from there, trapping them into a life that they have very little control or hope of changing. And the war on drugs has been primarily waged in communities of color, and people of color are more likely to receive higher offenses, although it is clear that people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than, than their counterparts of different races. They simply have higher rates of arrests. African Americans comprise only 14% of regular drug users, but are 40% of those who are arrested for drug related offenses. Um, one in three of those arrested for drugs in the last year were African American. And once convicted, black offenders receive longer sentences compared to white offenders. And when they are released from jail, um, ex-convicts have a very difficult time finding work. There's a little box that you must check on your employment um, applications that indicate if you have served a prison term, and for many employers, that is simply um, the reason to take that application and to put it aside. So the devastating impacts of these disparities of race and poverty um, have led many to believe that education and prison reform is the civil rights issue of our time. And as I continue my study and reflection and engagement, I have become convinced of this myself. And as your worship, I pray for God's wisdom and guidance as we discern how to proceed. For just as churches played such a pivotal role in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, I suspect we have a significant role to play today. And so we must discern that together. I'm so pleased, 50 congregations are taking part in a collective prayer and witness today. And over the next few months, we will study together. We will attend seminars. Some of us will go on pilgrimage to the 50th anniversary of the martyrdom of Jonathan Daniels, an Episcopal seminarian killed in the civil rights struggle in Alabama in the 1960s. Um, and from those learnings and studies and community engagement, we will ask God to guide our path. 
I'd like to tell you in closing uh, a very personal story that um, links me back to the words that Jesus spoke of in the Gospels about being his friend. Um, when, I was, um, when I was raising our two sons and our elder son was 10 years old, I took him with me to Central America for the summer. I wanted to have with him before he disappeared into adolescence and adventure uh, together. And so we went to Central America and we studied Spanish for a month, lived with a family, and then we went to work in a home for abandoned boys that, um, where my husband and I had worked for in our first year of marriage. Um, and I, it's fascinating to hear our son, who's now almost 30, talk about that experience because he remembers it as just like the greatest time of his life. What I remember is how homesick he was, how sick he got, I mean like really, really sick, and how I was, I got no sleep during that entire time because of my worry for him. I thought as I held him, as he was vomiting his guts out one night, I just remember I held him, what have I done to my child? And he just looked up at me and said, mommy, I wanna go home. You know, imagine, right? And so one night we were sleeping in bunk beds in this very modest guest house at the, at the home for boys. And I was praying and I was, just heart sick with worry and counting the seconds, the hours, the days until I could put him back on a plane home. And I heard, I heard Jesus say to me, as clear as I've heard anything, this is how I care for all the children in this orphanage. There were 150 boys in that school. And I felt so um, humbled, um, a bit embarrassed of my uh, singular focus on my child. And I understood in a way that I can barely articulate what it means to um, love as Jesus loves. Or that the call, when he talks about commandments, you know, I don't think he means it like this kind of command. I think he means it like, follow me in this. Do as I do. See what I see. And so on this day, um, I certainly give thanks for the sons I am proud to call my own. Um, but I offer that intense, fierce, maternal love. I offer that to God in service to all mother's children and commit myself and ask you to join me in committing our collective resources um, to love those children as our own and to do our part to address uh, some of the greatest wrongs committed in our, on our collective behalf um, in our time. Amen.